0: Hi, this is Professor of Photography, Jeff Curto, and welcome to class session number 11 for History of Photography. Class session number 11 deals with women photographers, women in photography looking at uh, their particular point of view and finding out whether or not there is a particular point of view that women bring to the medium. Here we are joining our class in progress. We're going to talk specifically today about women in photography. And women photographers. And it's not that we've completely ignored women photographers as we've gone along, but we've kind of uh, moved them at least a little bit aside in order to cover some of the more important male practitioners. But I wanted to circle back and make sure uh, that we understand uh, the way in which women have contributed to photography over its history. And an overarching question that I'm going to try and see if we can answer this afternoon is this one. Is Anatomy, destiny. Is anatomy destiny? Are photographs by women different from photographs by men? Can or should we describe different forms of expression, photograph or photographic or otherwise, as men's or women's art? If we know the gender of the photographer, does it affect our response to the image? the gender of the photographer? Does it affect how we respond to the picture itself? So these are some basic questions that I want to try and ask and maybe answer, although I don't know if we'll necessarily get to exact answers. You know, let's, let's sort of see if we can talk through this last one. If we know that the photograph was made by a man or made by a woman, does that impact how we view it?
1: No. It's just like yes. with most pictures that you see, where they have the photographer's
0: name at the bottom.
1: You look at the picture first before you even look at the name, wouldn't
0: you? Uh, sometimes I. But like
1: even if you opinion. look at the, I feel like even if you, no matter which way you look at it, if you look at the name first or look at the picture first, once you find out whether it's a male or female, it affects how you like view the emotional aspect of the photo.
0: And why is that? I mean, that's a really I. I think that's a. At least in my in my mind, that's an accurate way of the way it happens to me. But why why is that? Why does that happen?
1: Different motives, different ways of thinking. Women are just different than men in their thought processes, and therefore they see things differently than men. And and that can can important.
0: you uh, generalize that in any way? Like, can you say what what that thought process difference is?
1: Well. If would say that we uh, have more um, emotional impact on our art perhaps that that may, our art may come more from um, an emotional point of view than men's in general
0: and which me, which leaves men's art to come from
1: can be a little bit more um, like documentary
0: intellectual intellectual intellectual, intellectual. Joanne was going to say something
1: well I was going to say the emotional part but the opposite of that would be the men being more um, intellectual. And
0: that's such a generalization. But it is. Well, and, and in fact, sort of intriguingly, we're going to go on to make some presumptions and generalizations uh, to try and like, because this is kind of a tough nut to crack in a way to ask some of these questions about whether there is any kind of a gender divide, whether anatomy is destiny in photography. So uh, I'm going to make a few presumptions, and a couple of them are here. In general, time and place determine the style of any kind of artistic output, not gender. So generally speaking, if we were to look at something from the 1890s and compare it to something from the 1990s, we would be looking at time (coughs) stylistic differences as opposed to gender stylistic differences. Another presumption we can make, and you probably have seen this, although I haven't really defined it this way before, but if we look at that sort of 40 years on either side of the turn of the century, you can kind of see how that's one of the most important periods of artistic turn turn of events, turns of events in photography's history. So much stuff happens there, right? So many things are happening around that 1880 to 1920. Democratization of photography, Eastman's Kodak camera, all of those kinds of things are changing the way photography is being used, uh, and we also have during that same time period uh, Alfred Stieglitz in the photo secession <laughs> sort of pushing photography forward into the world of art. But that also coincides with an era of social upheaval. There's a tremendous amount of political social change happening, especially for women, during that same about 40-year time span. So we can kind of see those two things kind of dovetailing. It's also interesting that photography has always been a fairly male-dominated field in terms of the work that's out there in the studio world and the work that's out there in the professional photography world. And yet, here in the photography program at College of DuPage, over the 30 years I've been here, we've almost always had a 60% women, 40% men gender bias toward women. Most of the students in the program have been women, um, you know it's fairly closely borne out in this classroom, although you know men have made a strong showing this semester in here. So, um, but you know we we tend to have more women in the photo program, even though photo, photographic the world of photography um, has has been a fairly male-dominated field. Uh, so some generalizations are also in order, um, and. Uh, One of them is that while we could start naming landscape photographers and counting them off on our fingers and come up with all of the Westons and Adams and all of the other landscape photographers who have lived and worked, most of those landscape photographers would be men. In fact, the vast majority of them would
1: be. Isn't that because women weren't allowed to leave their house, basically?
0: Well, it's a question we'll see if if we can come to an answer with but certainly they are now, right? You know, you're out of the house. What are
1: you talking you? about now, too?
0: Right. Well, okay. you know, if, <laughs> if we,
1: if, Don't we tell my husband. if we go if we go
0: and look for landscape photography, by and large, we're going to find male photographers most of the time. Not all the time, but most of the time. That's changed a little bit in the twentieth and twenty-first century, the late twentieth and twenty-first century, but not that much. Go ahead not artistic? It's a good question, right? I mean, it's... And in, in some ways, it's a question I'm going to try to see if I can answer that particular question. But uh, here's another generalization. And the generalization is that in women's photography, form has a purpose. It has a sort of a function. Whereas in men's photography, there's often just form for the sake of form. Form being the three-dimensional quality of the objects in the world. So form has a function as opposed to uh, form for the sake of form. And we'll see uh, as we look at the images today, lots of photographs of people, and of those photographs of people, we'll see a ton of photographs of women, which is also pretty interesting. A lot of those photographs of people we'll see uh, are photographs of women. So Part of the answer that Deb sort of begins to articulate is this idea that in the 19th and early 20th century, women often fought against things like guilt, uh, sort of shame in some ways. There had been a sort of dictum imposed by their parents and their husbands, and, and that dictum was that the notion of bearing and raising children and doing housework and being a good wife and mother were to come before careers. we were supposed to be there before careers, or even any kind of avocational interest in something uh, like photography. This was especially true in the 19th century. But what was interesting was that when George Eastman first broke onto the scene with his Eastman Kodak camera, he sort of designed a lot of his advertising to... uh, Toward women. In fact, he went so far as to create a character for his advertising world, and that character was the Kodak girl. There she is, always dressed in this sort of uh, blue and white sailor stripe dress, always carrying a camera. The Kodak girl was uh, someone who was adventuresome, someone who was sort of out in the world in a new and different way. Uh, and You have to remember that Eastman had come through a time period when uh, women were sort of shunned aside for any kind of technological enterprise. Um, In the 19th century, membership in all of these photographic societies that we've talked about uh, were limited. The membership was limited mostly to men, but it wasn't limited so much by gender as by sort of educational status. Because men had been educated in the hard sciences of physics and chemistry and so forth, where women's education had always been much more of the arts and letters, literature, poetry, uh, painting, drawing, those kinds of things, and not the kind of requisite science knowledge that was needed for early photography. I was going to say, did he uh,
1: use the Kodak girl because... Women in art, or because the new camera was less scientific?
0: The, le- the new camera was less scientific. It was easy to use. You press the button, we do the rest, right? That was Eastman's mantra. Eastman's idea was that photography could now be a completely democratic function. So, he saw a whole new market, right? say again? He saw a whole new market. He saw a whole new market, and he's clearly marketing to it the Kodak simplicity. You know, vacation all the more if you simpl- Kodak. Right? The not only, simple. yeah, not only all the joys <laughs> yeah. that others have, but pictures besides, pictures of cherished hobbies and of all the scenes that most appeal to one. Anybody can make good pictures by the Kodak system. It's all by daylight now, and the Kodak developing machine has abolished the dark room. So, Kodak's five dollars to seventy-five dollars, depending on the complexity of the camera. So. Uh, By the time Eastman had come up with his Kodak camera in 1888, thousands of men and women were interested in making photographs. uh, And women adopted the camera in a particularly sort of uh, aggressive way uh, because, as one critic said about the camera, a camera like the Kodak was, quote, so convenient that a lady might, without attracting any attention, go out upon Broadway and take a series of photographs feeling perfectly sure that she would attract no more attention than she would if she carried a work basket. So I'll give you that again, really kind of quickly. A lady might, without attracting any attention, go out upon Broadway and feel perfectly sure she would attract no more attention than she would if she carried a work basket. So what does that mean?
1: What's a work basket? What's a work (laughs) basket?
0: Sewing. Sewing, knitting, needlepoint, you know. Something that, something that occupied her hands and would have been considered normal, right? You know, a lady carrying a basket of sewing or a basket of knitting or some other handwork would be considered normal. So this social critic says that a lady might, without attracting any attention, what's that about? Like it won't be weird.
1: Like she's invisible. Nobody's paying any attention to her. Period.
0: Because
1: she's female
0: women were supposed to be? Subordinate. <laughs> s- she, seen, like seen, not heard. <laughs> seen but not heard, right? Yeah. They're not supposed to make any fuss. So the camera becomes a symbol of something that they can do that doesn't put them in the sort of critical eye of the public in some way. So... That all falls into some other pieces of technology that are interesting to to note that are happening about this same time. And those pieces of technology uh, are things like the steamship, the railway, and the Singer sewing machine. The Singer sewing machine, which joined Eastman's Kodak camera um, in, uh, in, in being an important technological thing of the day. So uh, some of this was in part due to some changing notions about technology and the way technology related to women and the way women related to that technology. Machinery had traditionally been assigned to men <coughs> partly because it was designed by them for them to use, things like steamships and railways. Uh, What happened was that when Isaac Singer perfected a home sewing machine, it was a device that allowed women to accomplish domestic chores while still working with the latest and greatest technology. It was something that was this intersection of new technology, but at the same time didn't pull the woman away from what it was that was considered her sort of normal duty. Not like the typewriter. Not like the typewriter. typewriter Different from the from typewriter. Man. Originally. Yeah. It you know, became a, an accepted woman's device. So you can kind of see how these pieces of technology become something that become important in the world of women at, at that time. So the sewing machine and the camera emerged in the late 19th century as mechanical devices because of their, that had a domestic association that allowed women to use them, interface with contemporary technology, but in a way that didn't uh, allow them to, you know, sort of look like they were rebelling in some way. So kind of set the stage here a little bit to kind of begin to talk about some of the photographers that I want to show you this afternoon and, and discuss at least a little bit. And uh, uh, one of them, and and really probably one of the most interesting places to start, uh, partly because she's such an anomaly in almost every way, is Julia Margaret Cameron. Now, we've looked at Cameron a (coughs) few other times and spent a little bit of time with her before. Um, Cameron was one of the first really serious photographic practitioners who was a woman, Um, but... She also could be described as being one of the most important photographers of either gender at any time. Certainly a very important photographer and certainly somebody who I I hope whose work you'll remember after this class is done. Uh, She uh, uh, was born in India in 1815. Uh, India, which of course in 1815 was a solid colony of Great Britain. And so she's... uh, Uh, born in India, but eventually married a jurist, a guy named Charles Cameron, and they settled in London and uh, uh, also had a house on the Isle of Wight off the southern English coast. The Isle of Wight is still now a a popular resort area for uh, people from Great Britain. So some little bullet points about her there that are important for us to note. One is that she didn't start photographing until a little bit later in life, at age 48, when her children were grown up, out of the house. And her family gave her some photographic equipment uh, because they were afraid that she wouldn't have anything to do. So they gave her some photo equipment to combat that empty nest syndrome. Uh, But as she began to get involved in photography, uh, it came to really be an all-consuming activity. And one of the things that's really interesting is you can watch in Cameron's work a sort of progression from the work of the 19th century through uh, the work of uh, the the sort of later 19th century towards modernism. So uh, she produced a lot of the work that she made uh, from her home at a place called Freshwater on the Isle of Wight. She took a chicken coop that was out behind the house, transformed it into a photographic studio for herself, and enlisted everyone around her as models, from family members to domestic servants uh, local people who resided nearby. The subject's rank didn't seem to matter to her. She didn't really care whether it was like somebody who was a head of state or whether it was, you know, the the person who delivered the the, the coal for the for the coal burner. Um, it was uh, not uh, an important thing to her. She began by doing things like illustrating literature in photographic terms. So. She was making photographs inspired by the Bible, inspired by contemporary poetry. Uh, And uh, what's interesting to note is that while she started to do that, she also was somebody who moved in the highest circles of Victorian society uh, in England. And she not only was photographing her family and servants and so forth, but she was also photographing some of the most important people of the time because they happen to be family friends. Uh, so uh, she began to kind of look at the idea of illustrating ideas in photographs, so symbolic compositions, uh, and uh, uh, in fact uh, created a set of illustrations to illustrate Alfred Lord Tennyson's Idols of the King, uh, that great epic poem, using photographic methods to illustrate the characters and happenings in that great epic poem. Uh, Cameron had said, my aspirations are to ennoble photography and to secure for it the character and uses of high art. Those two words are capitalized, high art, by combining the real and ideal and sacrificing nothing of the truth by all possible devotion to poetry and beauty. Poetry and beauty. One of Cameron's relatives wrote many years later that Cameron had an idea that she was going to revolutionize photography, her words, and to make money in photography. Uh, And despite the fact that her family was fairly high-ranking in society, they weren't terribly wealthy. It's also interesting to note that she copyrighted her images. So she was one of the first photographers to recognize that the ownership of the image had something to do with its value. In her time, she was praised for her artistry, uh, but chided for uh, the sort of sloppy technical things that she did, oftentimes having a camera that wasn't quite in focus, partly because she believed that the picture was prettier when it was slightly blurry, or if she tapped the camera a little bit during the exposure. So apparently she wasn't the greatest technician ever, uh, but she certainly was able to make uh, some really evocative images. Uh, The man on the right is her husband, Charles Hay Cameron. And here, of course, is Alfred Lord Tennyson. And you may recall that we've looked at some other photographs by Cameron of Darwin and some other important people of of the time period. So uh, one of the other things that's really intriguing is if you look at these pictures coming from the 1880s, 1870s and 1880s, that... Compared to many of the portraits that we've looked at that came just before these, these are pictures that look remarkably modern, especially this picture of Charles Cameron head and shoulders, not full body or knees to the knees to the top of the head. Uh, they are very modern, intuitively realizing that there was some power in a close up portrait. Uh, some people, when you read about Cameron characterize as a kind of a, characterize her as a kind of a a batty eccentric. uh, But apparently, she was a woman of tremendous energy and great intelligence, um, and really in need of challenging experiences, experiences that weren't that easy for a woman to find in Victorian England. And as a sort of counterpart to her, I want to show you just a few pictures by a woman named Lady Clementina Haywarden. What a name, right? Right out of a Dickens novel, it's crazy. Lady Clementina Hayward. Uh, Haywarden worked in England just a bit before Cameron, and it kind of gives us an interesting little counterpoint to Cameron herself. So Haywarden, who lived from 1822 to 1865, was an amateur photographer who lived and made photographs in London in the mid-19th century. She was respected among the photographic circles of her time, and her work has stood up to the scrutiny of history, and is still fairly influential to uh, photographers today. Her photographs explored femininity and family relationships, identity, and form. Uh, and she also was a pretty good technician photographically. So her, the quality of her, of her uh, images is also quite good. Uh, she was one of the first women to join the Photographic Society of London and the first woman to win any of their awards. But what's interesting about these pictures is the function that Haywarden sort of ascribed to them. If Cameron was making photographs that she was expecting to frame and hang on walls and sell for money, Haywarden's pictures were intended to be, and in fact were, pasted into albums. You can see these torn off corners here and the torn-off corners are what happened when they removed the picture from the photo album that they were glued into. So her pictures were intended to be sort of stuck into a family photo album, as opposed to having a kind of higher aspiration in that way. Her compositions seem a little less concerned with capturing the sitter's character and more with expressing a sensual or enigmatic mood. Haywarden and her husband had ten children, two boys and eight girls, out of whom eight children survived into adulthood. So at the same time that she was being absorbed in motherhood, she was also a very prolific photographer. From about 1862, Haywarden concentrated on photographing her daughters in costume tableau, which was a very popular photographic subject at the time, especially for this newly arriving group of amateur women photographers. So costumes from the dressing-up box are combined with dresses that are at the height of fashion to produce these beautiful and detailed studies that confound the contemporary of their time with the make-believe of dress-up. So she was, uh, and we've talked about the idea of amateurism, she was a sort of a consummate amateur in terms of producing work simply because she loved doing it. And she produced about 800 extant photographs, in merely six years of active work, she died uh, at age 42, probably shortly after having the tenth child, I would guess. Right? So, um, yeah. Right? So, just sort of thinking about that. So, uh, and for us, 800 photographs doesn't seem like very much. I mean, 800 photographs is a weekend for, for some of us, right? But 800 photographs in the days of wet plate collodion is a huge number of images especially for somebody who is running a household and raising 10 children. Uh, Really kind of a a remarkable thing, Uh, dying at age 42. Then we have this woman, Frances Benjamin Johnston. Frances B. Johnston, a noted commercial photographer who worked within the confines of the commercial market. She was really interested in having a life uh, that... uh, Was uh, that allowed photography to to be a a sort of primary living for her. Um, But she was also a progressive. She was somebody who was sort of out there and trying new things and uh, doing new things and perhaps would have been uh, regardless. So here is her (laughs) self-portrait. Let's look at it a little bit bigger. So her self-portrait shows her sitting with her skirts hiked well above her ankle, a beer stein in one hand, oh, and a no. cigarette in the other hand. Oh. What the world coming to
1: <laughs> <laughs>
0: Up at the top on the mantelpiece are photographs of her discarded lovers.
1: Really? Oh.
0: And yet, where is she?
1: She's happy.
0: She's home home by the hearth, right? She's home by the hearth. So this is a carefully constructed, raised middle finger (laughs) to the establishment, right? It is totally about saying, I can be who I want to be, and yet I don't have to give up any of the stuff that I'm supposed to be. I can still be whoever I would like to be. Pretty powerful image. <coughs> Excuse me. So Johnston entered photography when the field was relatively new and professional gender boundaries were still being defined. The invention of some of this lighter photographic equipment that we've talked about, and then also changing technologies and developing, meant that photography could be moved from the studio and the darkroom, traditionally male provinces, out into the street or into the home. But the repressives of the 19th century, <coughs> no, I picked up this cough yesterday, or day before yesterday, so pardon me. The repressiveness of the late 19th century oftentimes cast a shadow. There were a host of prescriptions that governed proper female behavior, and the sensuality of the human body as a subject caused many to argue that this new art form. Whether that body was clothed or not, uh, should remain a male preserve. But you can see by the inclusion of these two portraits here in our little slideshow today that Johnston was uh, photographing some of the most important people of her era. Susan B. Anthony, who was on a coin. On a coin. Why is Susan B. Anthony on a coin? She a
1: women's right advocate.
0: Very, very powerful women's right advocate who was at least partially responsible for women earning the right to vote, right? And Booker T. Washington? Women's right <laughs> Is Booker T. Washington?
1: What he involved in medical?
0: Nobody, nobody Booker T. Washington?
1: I know the name Peanuts.
0: A really Washington very, very Washington. important yeah. uh, uh, <laughs> person in the, he, he had been very influential during uh, the, the sort of freedom movement from slavery, uh, but more importantly, he went on to become uh, a very, very important publisher of ideas about humanistic thought and rights, right? So. Uh, very important, uh, very important uh, African American uh, person. So, and Mark Twain, and then the wedding photograph for Alice Roosevelt, the daughter of the president. So she had studied the photographer Johnston, had studied uh, art in Paris and Washington, and had worked for periodicals, writing and illustrating her articles. She then began to take her own photographs and embarked on a campaign to promote greater recognition of women in photographic circles, primarily in America. Um, And she also had been very, very involved in looking at equality for all people, whether they were women or men, uh, minorities or not. So uh, she was uh, uh, somebody who really felt that all that was required to sort of break through the chains that had previously been there. All that was required was, uh, as she put it, to be an energetic, ambitious woman with even ordinary opportunities. With those, success is always possible. Hard, uh, intelligent, and conscientious work seldom fails to develop small beginnings into large results. So uh, active, working, pressuring, pushing, moving forward. This photograph was made uh, uh, as an advertising photograph. Uh, It was uh, made as an advertising photograph for Hampton University, which is a historically black university located in Hampton, Virginia in the US, founded in 1868 uh, by black and white leaders of the American Missionary Association after the American Civil War to provide education to newly freed slaves. you know, it's a it's a terrific photograph on a number of levels. I mean, one it obviously shows these guys at work, uh, and is clearly staged, but really quite uh, quite really nice in its composition in terms of how she's put the image together. You know, some of that, and I, I, will, I will tell you, remind you again that you know sometimes the pictures we see on screen aren't as pristine or perfect as the original would have been, simply because of the generational loss of all of the different ways that the pictures have come to us. So this one, I think, is a more modern scan. It's from, almost the 20th century, though, um, and and it is, it is also in the the, the dawn of the 20th century. So technology is moving.
1: Uh, are all the women? I remember two of them are, but are most of them from well-to-do families? Or
0: generally speaking, yes, uh, but not always. Okay. Um uh, And you know, we'll we'll sort of actually this is a, a pretty good example, and then we'll come to another one here before we before we take a break. Uh, Gertrude Casabir. Uh, uh was a member of the Photo Secession. You may recall that we looked at her when we looked at the photo secessionist photographers, uh, and that she was a successful New York City portrait photographer making art portraits. So her pictures were uh, um, much much prized because they were not standard portraits. She classified them as art portraits. Again, began photographing a little bit later in her life as opposed to doing it from the teen years or early 20s. Um, Her photographs were often characterized, at least at first, by soft focus, by backlighting, often being printed on textured paper, and they're primarily allegorical studies of mothers and daughters, but also include portraits of her relatively affluent clients, although she wasn't terribly affluent herself. Um, So, after my babies came said Kesa Beer, I determined that I would use the brush, meaning that she would learn how to paint. I wanted to hold their lovely little faces, so I went to art school. But art takes long study, and childhood is fleeting. So I chose a quicker method, mm-hmm. photography. Children and motherhood, therefore, appear as frequent themes in her photographs. Uh, and what's interesting to note is that woman as mother, from the beginning of women doing photography, had been a pretty common theme because it was seen as being close to what it was that women should be doing. Uh, so in this context, gender becomes especially meaningful because of the relationship between the social, so, social ideology and the artist's personal lives. And Kesa uh, Beer's most often quoted advice was this. I earnestly advise women of artistic tastes to train for the unworked field of modern photography. It seems especially adapted to them. And the few who have entered it are meeting with gratifying and profitable success. If one already draws and paints, so much the better the equipment. And then she finishes. She had this sort of wry sense of humor. She finishes this quote with something you have, kind of have to like prepare yourself for how this how this works. So she's saying, you know, it, it would be a good profession for women to get into. And then she says, Besides, consider the advantage of a vocation which necessitates one being a taking woman rather than a giving one. Taking photographs as opposed to giving. So she's sort of in her own wry and sly way, sort of spinning the ball a little bit there. All right, let's do one, one more here. Anne Brigman. Anne Brigman, another member of the photo secession uh, whose work and life manifested a fairly radical vision. Her lifestyle included separation from her husband, to pursue her photographic work. And that work utilized the traditional language of romanticism to express her revolutionary belief in a woman's freedom to follow her own destiny. So the pictures that show this nude figure out in the world proudly displaying her nude body are in some ways analogous to what it was that she was doing displaying and proudly putting herself out there in the world. Her photographs became, to her, important allegories in which she could reveal her most personal responses to the natural wonders of the world. The images evoke free spirits, striving for physical and personal emancipation. You may recall that a little while ago, I asked you to sort of remember those dark and hunched-over nudes that Edward Steichen made, Remember that? I said, you know, try to stuck those, stuck those in the back of your head, those, you know, dark, faceless, hunched-over nude figures. Well, compare those to these. Steichen's images, by comparison, uh, look like uh, interpretations of a disgraced Eve, whereas here, uh, Brigman is showing herself in, uh, uh, in sort of all of her colors. So this um, is her. This is her, and most all of her photographs are her, self-portraits. She'd set up the camera and have someone else trip the shutter. Um. So it's interesting, if you look at Brigham and, and Francis Benjamin Johnston, you'd sort of wonder if they didn't come from kind of different planets in some way. But then there's a common thread, and that common thread is rebellion. Both women are telling us that an old order was ending and something new was happening, and... And in fact, soon it did, because after World War I, both artistic revolution and women's suffrage had taken place. And we now had uh, women voting and doing a bunch of other things that they hadn't done before. So Shansonetta, crazy name, right? Shansonetta Stanley Emmons. Stanley, her maiden name, is also the name of her brothers who invented a car driven by steam. Stanley Steamer. So uh, Emmons was a relatively uh, a woman from an inventive and resourceful family Um, and uh, her husband died in 1898 and she used photography as a means of both emotional support and financial support Um, and here she was a woman and a photographer at a time when being either one Placed someone uh, a little bit outside the accepted parameters of the art world. But she was uh, obliged to be pretty resourceful when she fashioned a career. Uh, And she created images that alluded to an earlier time, inspiring some nostalgia for a way of life in Eclipse. So she's known for some really beautiful and and oftentimes kind of touching scenes of rural Maine. uh, where um, the photographs that she made were photographs of, of sort of things that we take for granted in some ways, uh, things that are sort of normal, you know, sitting with your beloved outside on a beautiful summer day or on the porch or sitting around the dinner table or watching the ocean. Uh, so one of the things that's interesting is that the whole concept of sort of genre, uh, photography of the genre of photography of, um, you know, sort of the domestic world, really hadn't been invented yet, and so, you know, here's Francenetta Stanley Evans kind of exploring that, exploring that world. So, <clears throat> and then there's Imogen Cunningham, Imogen Cunningham, who uh, was born in 1883, died in 1976. Everybody get their name on the sign-in sheet? Cool. So 1888, 1883 rather, than 1976. So she began photographing in 1901, and she photographed until about a week before she died in 1976, a 75-year career in photography, which in and itself is pretty remarkable. But now let's add another sort of little bit of spin to it that her 75-year career in photography, which ended at her death in 1976, when she died, she had been practicing photography for more than half of the history of the medium. Sort of take a second to absorb that. She died in 1976, and when she died, she'd been photographing for more than half of the history of the medium of photography. Really fascinating, right? To think that somebody could have made that huge a, a, a body of work over a long lifetime, but also it also also points out how young photography is.
1: There's a really common theme with all these women that I've noticed, and that is they all either are lost by, by death or dumped their men, and then really <laughs> got it in photography and got their recognition. She she divorced her husband. Yeah.
0: Exactly. So it's it, it is it is interesting, right? So, uh, and and we'll we'll kind of we'll uh, I'll I'll in some ways kind of address that here coming up. But it, it's interesting that you note that because it is a kind of a common a common threat. Uh, she was also a group of a part of that group F64 that we mm-hmm. talked about. Uh, Weston Adams, Morley Bear, uh, a number of other West Coast photographers, and uh, because of that, she is often considered one of the pioneers of modernism in photography. What's interesting is that she started out uh, photographing uh, in the sort of soft-focused pictorialist vein. Makes perfect sense. If she's making photographs here in the early 1900s, 1901, 1902, 1903, that she would be making photographs that were uh, sort of in the style that was normal at the time. But she's also making photographs of male nudes, a female photographer making photographs of male nudes. Male nudes had already been a sort of semi-taboo subject uh, for a number of reasons, but the female photographer photographing a male nude uh, was something else altogether. Um, so, uh, actually, I should, I should just grab this. Can I grab this from here? Well, I'll show it to you later. The, the tweet that goes out with this has Imogen Cunningham uh, being interviewed by Johnny Carson. Maybe we'll we'll circle back to it at the end of class because it's just, it's classic. It's so incredibly great. So in addition to that kind of form, she eventually, like Weston did, remember she's a group F64 person, so like Weston did, she eventually kind of gets rid of that soft focus mentality, begins photographing with small apertures, lots of depth of field, larger format cameras, so forth and so on, and making photographs that have a real formalist quality to them, Uh, but also really looking in many ways at uh, subject matter that is in every possible way, feminine subject matter, flowers often referred to as being a sort of feminine subject matter, but at the same time, trying things that are way outside the box. One of the coolest parts about Imogen Cunningham is that she's a photographer who changed with her time. So as she progressed into the middle and later part of the 20th century, she started experimenting with abstraction, with multi-image techniques, with uh, ideas about surrealism, (coughs) so forth and so on. Really, really interesting photographer. Uh, And certainly one of the one of the most interesting photographers to, if, if, if for no other reason than for how long she practiced photography. If
1: you go back one with the mannequins, one doesn't look like a mannequin hand, the darker it's one looks like. It weird. Uh-huh. Those aren't mannequins interesting. at all. They're hands, the mannequin hands. hands. They are? Yeah. Oh, except for the one. Except for the one. <laughs>
0: except for the one. So, Dorothea Lang. Now, we've looked at Lang a couple of times, so uh, we won't spend a, a ton of time on her, uh, but to sort of discuss a, a few ideas about Lang that are important for us to think about. Uh, one is that she's a photographer who had a huge impact on uh, American photography. Because of her work with the Farm Security Administration and uh, the, the photographs that she produced through the FSA uh, for that. Uh, and also because of the way in which she approached the kind of work that she did with a real respect for the people that she met and the people who were, even the people who aren't in this photograph, but who were displaced by the big. Corporate farming conglomerate that had created uh, that situation there. Um, A year before she died, she summed up her new vision, or her vision, rather, of the special role of the woman artist, saying that compared to a man's work, there was a sharp difference or a gulf. The woman's role is immeasurably more complicated, she said. There are not many first-class women producers. Not many. Women produce in other ways, where they do both there is conflict. Where they do both, there is conflict. So, which kind of gets at at least a little bit of what Deb was talking about. We'll sort of flesh that out here in a second. So, uh, it's uh, it's rare that we get a chance to hear a photographer describe the process by which they made photographs. Um, And... uh, here is the photograph that we've used in a number of different places throughout our time together this semester. Migrant Mother, Dorothea Lang's best known photograph. But here is Lang describing what it is that she did when making this photograph. And here are the pictures in sequential order. I saw and approached the hungry and desperate mother as if drawn by a magnet. I do not remember how I explained my presence or my camera to her, but I do remember she asked me no questions. I made five exposures, working closer and closer from the same direction. I did not ask her name or her history. She told me her age, that she was 32. She said that they had been living on frozen vegetables from the surrounding fields and birds that the children had killed. She had just sold the tires from her car to buy food. There she sat in that lean-to tent with her children huddled around her and seemed to know that my pictures might help her. And so she helped me. There was a sort of equality about it. That's from Popular Photography Magazine, February of 1960, when Dorothea Lange recounted making the photographs that led up to Migrant Mother.
1: Then three girls, his dad died, was in Orville, 1931, and I was 28 years old, and I had five kids, and that one was on the road. She never even saw her daddy. She was born after he died. Very yes. hard. Very hard. And she, And I picked cotton in fireball. When that girl I was about two years old, I picked cotton and fireball for $0.50 a hundred. A hundred weight. A hundred pounds. How much did 50- you pick in a day then? I generally yeah four fifty, five hundred. I didn't even weigh a hundred pounds. I lived down in Shafter, and I'd home before daylight and come in after dark. Just existed, you know. We, any way we lived, we survived. We just put it that way. I walked from what they call the Hoover Campground right there at the bridge. I walked from there to way down on um, First Street and worked at a penny a dish down there for fifty cents a day and the leftovers. You no, know, they gave me what was left over to take home. Maybe sometimes I carry home two water buckets full. Well, I started we started from LA to Washingtonville. Mm-hmm. And the timing chain broke on my car and I had a guy to put in this pecan. And, in uh Oklahoma. I started to cook dinner for my kids and all the little kids around the camp come in. Can I have a bite? Can I have a bite? But they was hungry than people was. And um I got my car fixed and I was just getting ready to pull out when she come back and sent my picture. I come to this town in 1945. I transferred from, from Hilliard State to Modesto. And when this hospital opened up out here, I went to work there. In the first eight years I lived in this town, I worked 16 hours out of 24. Eight and a half years, seven days a week. Are you comfortable now?
0: Yeah. So uh, that interview with my grandmother Florence Thompson was made in 1979 by a photographer named Bill Ganzel, uh, who also made this photograph that we're looking at there on the right. Florence Thompson died in 1983 um, and uh, here is Ganzel's photograph of Florence Thompson and her three children, uh, her three daughters. So it's interesting, isn't it, to sort of see where this picture that we've seen so many times kind of takes us uh, through and what happens at the end of it. Uh, and really interesting on a number of levels, uh, one of the things that I'd like you to sort of consider is what it would have been like to have been Florence Thompson, not only during her youth when she struggled and you know worked very, very, very hard uh, for very little money, uh, Helping her kids uh, survive, uh, but also what it would be like to have been the name, or, or rather the face, associated with the depression. You know, what it would be like to become the icon of a particular time period in American history, in world history. In fact, I just saw this just the other day. It was on the internet. It flashed by me, so I didn't get a chance to sort of save it and show it to you. But it was this this migrant mother photograph was used to describe. Something about the economy. You know, it was a yeah. story about the economy, and it was not a positive story. And so they were using yeah. that photograph. There's a it, book
1: uh, now on the bestseller list with her photograph, and it's um, a story about depression, you know, the life of. You know, maybe it's the same thing, but. So one it. of the
0: one of the great things about this photograph, uh, and all of the photographs made by the FSA for that matter, is well. Who owns them? Uh, the to, That's to sorry, L- Library of Congress. You, yeah. you own them. Yeah, library. We of Congress. can buy those. You, you own them because they are property of the United States. Yeah. And so, as citizens, we own them. They're in the Library of Congress. And in fact, you can go to the Library of Congress website and you can order relatively inexpensively prints from any of the photographs that any of the FSA photographers made. It's pretty remarkable, actually. So I also find it interesting that Ganzel's portrait of her has her hand at her face. You know, it's just sort of a... Her eyes are the same in both pictures too. Pretty remarkable, right? All right. So another FSA photographer, Marion Post-Wolcott, lesser known than Dorothea Lange, and uh, unique among FSA photographers in that she tended to concentrate on race relations. This Roy Stryker, who was in charge of the FSA, did not give a ton of direction to his photographers other than, you go here and see what you find. And the photographers, therefore, were kind of left alone to determine what it was that the story was. Stryker had given them kind of marching orders about what it was that they were to be looking for in a general way. But uh, what Post-Wilcott concentrated on Uh, oftentimes in her photographs, were the the relationship between black and white in the South, and where the power was, how the struggle was working, what was going on, um, and sometimes the pictures are fairly overt, like these two, uh, and sometimes they're a bit more subtle um, in terms of how they're approaching what it is that they're talking about. The photographs were almost all made with large format cameras, so they have tremendous amounts of detail, uh, really beautiful uh, and uh, almost uh, kind of heroic detail uh, to them. Uh, So uh, uh, Farm Security Administration photographers were not limited to Dorothea Lange and Marion Post-Wilcott, another one of the great FSA photographers. Then we have Margaret Bourke-White, Margaret Bourke-White, a photographer for Life magazine. Here she is in her flight suit and camera in hand, uh, ready to board a plane to go up and photograph. She was uh, one of these sort of fearless people who was ready for anything at any time. Uh, she was one of the first photojournalists, male or female, uh, and uh, she established herself quite early as a photojournalist by making photographs uh, like this one at Buchenwald. She was one of the first photographers to be there, and one of the first photographers to show what it was uh, that was happening there. And, of course, what was interesting was that all of this stuff that had been happening was something that people didn't generally know about, right? It wasn't something that was broadcast. Everybody had heard rumors that these things were happening in these concentration camps, but there wasn't a lot of evidence until photographers began to see what was there. Deb? Oh, I just funded an a concentration camp. You know, yeah, it's Buchenwald. Yeah. So, I didn't and know in fact, here is another uh, uh, Margaret Bourke-White photograph uh, here of Germans who the the Allied troops would go into the local towns and they would bring people from it the towns and, yeah. and make them look at what was happening, what had happened there, because they didn't believe it, and you can see the expressions on their faces and so forth and so on. Because Bork White uh, was a, um, a journalistic photographer, a lot of her photographs require um, uh, sort of captions, or at least something that describes the picture to us. So, Nazi stormtrooper training class. Without that caption, the picture doesn't have the same kind of meaning. Uh, people waiting in a bread line for the during the Louisville flood in 1937. Um, that also is important. And uh, Margaret Bourke-White uh, was also noted because she was the last photographer to photograph Mohindus Gandhi, the Mahatma, the great one. Uh, so uh, here is uh, one of the very last photographs uh, that she made of Gandhi. Uh, and uh, then there is uh, Jarwal Nehru over on the right, Uh, the first prime minister of India. So what's interesting about Bork-White as a photographer of this time period is that uh, it kind of helps us understand how important photography is to showing us a particular period of time, a particular point in history. So here's one of Bork-White's photographs of Gandhi. And of course, Gandhi, who uh, sort of uh, established a policy of helping India gain its independence by peaceful resistance, peaceful resistance, non-participation in some of the things that the British government had declared that Indian citizens were supposed to do. So some of you may, at some point, have seen the great movie Gandhi. If you haven't seen this, this is now some years old in the 1980s or something. It won Best Picture, and Ben Kingsley won Best Actor for portraying Gandhi. If you haven't seen it or if you haven't seen it in a long time, it's really worth seeing for a number of reasons. Not only is it an amazingly good movie, but it also is a really good description of the way in which the world of that era has impacted the world of our era. To understand what happened there helps us to understand what's happening in our world now.
1: Does this picture represent him making his own clothes?
0: Yes. Gandhi was a was a firm believer in making homespun. Uh, he believed that uh, because, because so much of India was given over to uh, British landowners whose product went elsewhere and then was sold back to Indian citizens at inflated prices, Gandhi encouraged every Indian citizen to not buy British import cotton clothing because it was cotton that had come from India, gone to England to be made into cloth and then sold back to Indian citizens at prices that were far beyond what they could afford. So he told everyone, make your own clothes. So what's interesting about uh, the movie Gandhi is that uh, Candace Bergen plays Margaret Bourke White in the movie. And uh, has anybody remember seeing Gandhi a long time ago? Some of you may have seen it a long time ago. Really well worth a a look see now just because it's such a great movie. So here's Candace Bergen as, as Margaret Bourke White, and she does a tremendous job.
1: Where to use the worst form of violence? But do you really believe you could use nonviolence against someone like Hitler? What you cannot do is accept injustice from Hitler or anyone. You must make the injustice visible. Candace Bergen. You're a tempress. Just an admirer.
0: Nothing's more dangerous. <laughs> so Bergen is fabul- fabulous in this movie if for no other reason than she looks like she knows how to handle the four by five speed graphic that uh, that she uses. She looks like looks like and acts like a photographer in the movie, which is really tremendous. Uh so, so the reason I've paused here is that Margaret Bourke White, as portrayed uh, by Candace Bergen in the movie Gandhi. Uh, Bourke-White recorded one of the most important and interesting migrations of people in the history of the world. So India wins its independence from England, and as it does so, it splits into two nations. Because while Gandhi wanted very much to have all nations, all creeds, all religions under one umbrella of India, uh, Muhammad Ali Jinnah, becomes the first governor general of Pakistan because Muslims believed that they needed their own state. And so what happened was that the part of India that had been India is now a new separate country called Pakistan. And what we had was in 1947, 10 million people on the move, on foot, over hundreds of miles, with Hindus and Sikhs going south into India, and Muslims going north into this new country of Pakistan. Uh, and the photographs of Margaret Bourke-White that she made during this time period are just extraordinarily uh, moving, uh, almost, uh, almost difficult to look at. Uh, they're so heart-wrenching. So here's another little snippet here.
1: Mohandas Gandhi meets with Mohammed Ali Jinnah in an attempt to bring the Hindus and the Muslims together. In an India, always torn by the strife of castes, Mahatma Gandhi has tried for some semblance of unity. Again, it is something he failed to achieve. He parted friends with China, he says, but the Indian problem remains.
0: The Indian problem, and in many ways, that same division is uh, uh, is something that continues to cause friction in our world. So. It's one of the reasons that knowing at least a little bit about uh, Gandhi and his era and uh, the, uh, uh, the great uh, sort of attempt at democracy that, uh, that India has had since 1947 uh, is worth, worth understanding at least a little bit about. Barbara Morgan. I've included Barbara Morgan uh, because she represents a really interesting part of photography. Uh, she was generally known as a photographer of modern dance, but also was uh, really a, a skilled uh, manipulator of images, making multiple exposures, uh, combining images in interesting ways. so uh, you know, here she is a portrait of barbara morgan i 've tried to put some portraits into this class session so you get a sense of what these women looked like so Here she is photographing modern dance. She was one of the first people to recognize that modern dance had intrinsic qualities that were different from ballet and that that kind of dancing could be recorded in a particularly interesting way. Previous photographers of modern dance had tried to photograph during performances, but uh, Barbara Morgan would instead uh, take take some notes during a performance and then ask the dancers to come back and perform certain movements uh, that that she found uh, particularly interesting. So both of these are are Martha Graham, uh, the great dancer, Martha Graham dancing. uh, In this case, the dance is Lamentation. And that one is Letter to the World. And the photograph is called Letter to the World Kick. But the other thing that, uh, that Morgan was adept at was this sort of editorialized version of a photograph where she's making pictures out of composite pieces so uh, an image that speaks about freedom and then an image called Hearst over the people what is that about? Hearst William, over the people William
1: Randolph Hearst and his control over the media
0: so what is William Randolph Hearst and his control over the media?
1: Newspapers.
0: newspapers tell me more Hearst owned pretty much all the newspapers at one particular time in history. He owned almost every newspaper in America, at least all the major ones. And there was a tremendous concern that because one person owned the media at a time period when the media was predominantly newspapers, if one person owns the media, how do you get any kind of purity of information? How do you know what kind of Information is pure. Very interesting in our time period now when news has become almost exclusively editorial. Somewhere there's a spin underneath, right? And we have to figure out how to kind of balance our viewing and our understanding of various news organizations to understand where the real truth lies because every piece of news seems to be spun at us in some way. Then uh, Vivian Meyer. Vivian Meyer, man, this woman is uh, really, really interesting. Her story is interesting. Uh, The history of her story is interesting. Uh, And it's also interesting because she embodies that idea of an amateur photographer, somebody who merely photographs simply because she clearly couldn't not photograph. She seemed compelled to photograph. Uh, The more we learn about her, almost the less we know in some ways. She's a woman shrouded in tremendous amounts of mystery, a woman who was a nanny as a profession almost her entire life, kept this sort of secret world of photography that nobody knew about until she died. And after she died, all of a sudden, all of these photographs come to light and go on sale at some sort of you know household auction, and a couple of different buyers end up with the photographs. And as they begin to look at them, they recognize that it's not just sort of happenstance. This woman was an amazingly good photographer. So uh, she was born February 1st, 1926. She died April 21st, 2009. And uh, she was born in New York City, but grew up in France uh, and returned to the U.S. and worked for about 40 years as a nanny, predominantly here in Chicago. During those years, she took about 100,000 photographs. 100,000 photographs primarily of people and cityscapes most often in Chicago but she traveled and photographed all around the world her photographs remained completely unknown and mostly undeveloped and unprinted until they were discovered by a Chicago historian and collector John Maloof and then uh, simultaneously discovered by uh, another collector who also found a a substantial body of her work Um, and uh, the work wasn't discovered until 2007, just uh, seven years ago. Following Meyer's death, uh, her work began to receive some critical acclaim, and the photographs have been exhibited literally all over now in, in the US and England, and Germany, Denmark, Norway, Italy, uh, uh, just about every place you could possibly imagine, and have appeared in newspapers and magazines, have prompted a number of uh, documentary movies about them. Um, and uh, a few books have been published as well. Um, and most intriguingly, sort of by a set of odd circumstances, much of the film that Vivian Meyer had shot, uh, which had remained undeveloped, she'd shot the film but hadn't developed it, uh, ended up here at the College of DuPage in our dark rooms. And our students, led by Frank Jackowick, our lab manager program specialist, Our students developed this film, hundreds of rolls of 120 film, and proofed all of those negatives. And as they proofed those negatives, they were the first people to see the photographs that this woman had photographed and made. Really interesting, right? Uh, Hundreds and hundreds and hundreds of rolls of film came through our dark rooms, were developed and proofed, and in some cases printed. And also, intriguingly, Vivian Meyer will have an exhibition of her work here in our new gallery in this building uh, sometime this summer, uh, and it's going to be accompanied by a a sort of uh, custom-made print sale. Ask Frank for more information about it, but man, it sounds like it's going to be awesome. Uh, We're going to show one of the documentaries here, uh, but it will occupy the new Cleve Carney gallery down there in the lobby of the art center building so uh, i think it has a lot to do with the fact that frank had some tremendous input on getting this woman's work developed so imagine if you you, you leave behind hundreds of rolls of film undeveloped what happens to that film and fortunately uh, somebody who cared enough to save it ended up bringing it here and developed it all so pretty amazing really when it comes right down to it But it also points out, and something that I'd just like to keep mentioning to you the history of photography is constantly being written. You know, we can sort of think of what it is that we've been talking about, low these last 11 weeks or whatever, as being a sort of finite body of information. But I didn't have anything in my slide presentation about Vivian Meyer five years ago. We didn't know about Vivian Meyer until maybe four years ago, as, that, as this work started to bubble to the surface, people were saying, have you heard about this work by Vivian Meyer, and then Frank gets involved, you know? So we're writing the history of photography, you and I. You know, what we value, what we save, how we save it, um, and the work that we do and the work that others do is continuing to add to, uh, that, to add to that body of information about the history of the media. So Deanne Arbus. Uh, Deanne Arbus is uh, another photographer uh, whose uh, importance is is so incredibly great that it's hard to kind of figure out where to put her. She certainly is uh, an apt subject for our Women in Photography uh, class session, but uh, it would be uh, tragic to go through a History of Photography class without talking about Arbus, who arguably is one of the most important photographers of the 20th century uh, and uh, is, is certainly a very influential photographer even to this day, uh, even though she, uh, she died in 1971. So the pictures that she made are tremendously direct, and uh, they are often, if not always, of people who live in some ways on the edges of society. And they're very direct and very sort of odd in the way in which she made them. Uh, the pictures are, are not always from the same distance, but they always have a sort of so, sort of a confrontational quality to them. Uh, when her work uh, uh, sort of burst onto the scene, it aroused a tremendous amount of controversy that was divided kind of into two camps. One camp said that these pictures were unhealthy and shocking, the sick products of a sick mind. Um, And another camp said that what she was doing was looking closely at societal misfits and asking the normal, quote-unquote, middle-class man and woman to ask themselves why they considered themselves so superior. So her pictures, as she would describe them, were like trophies of the hunt. She was particularly interested in photographing uh, these people who were in some way sort of at the edges, at the margins in some way, whether they were dwarfs or whether they were people of society, she sort of in some way ended up encapsulating them all in the same kind of piece of amber somehow. She said, freaks are born with trauma. They've already passed it by. They're aristocrats. If I were just curious, it would be very hard for me to say to someone, I wanted to come into your house and I want you to tell me the story of your life. I mean, people are going to say you're crazy. But the camera is a kind of a license. And a lot of people, they want to be paid that much attention. And it's a reasonable amount of attention to be paid. What I'm trying to describe is that it's impossible to get out of your skin and into somebody else's. And that's what all of this is a little bit about. That somebody else's tragedy is not the same as your own. The process of photography itself has a kind of exactitude, a kind of scrutiny that we're not normally subject to. We're nicer to each other than the intervention of the camera is going to make us. The camera's a little bit cold and a little bit harsh." Deanna Arbus, also the subject of a movie starring Nicole Kidman called Fur. Not very good, but Nicole Kidman playing Deanna Worth a shot late at night. I mean, not that good though, I have to tell you. Hope Nicole isn't listening. Marie Cassindes. Cassindes is notable for a number of reasons, but probably the one that I, that I want to pull out is her use of Polaroid materials. Polaroid, when it first came out with its peel-apart films, he said of <clears throat> film would go into the back of a 4x5 camera, it would be pulled out and squeegeed so that some a pot of chemical would get squished in between a receiver sheet and a negative, and then peeled apart to reveal the photograph after a minute of development with these chemicals in contact with one another. Polaroid, as they developed this film, gave a bunch of the film to photographers and said, try this out, see what you can make with it. And what Cassinda said was, wow, it's like having a darkroom in the palm of my hand. Because what she recognized was that as she began to experiment with it, if she did exactly what was on the box in terms of the instructions, she got regular-looking pictures. But if she made very long exposures, 10, 15, 20 minutes long, and she made changes to the development time of how long these two sheets were allowed to stay in contact with one another or the temperature, putting it in the refrigerator versus maybe putting it under her arm or in an oven that was at a low temperature, that she could affect the way in which the colors worked. She could change the color palette of the material. Now, this was revolutionary. To us, this kind of thing doesn't seem like crazy at all. I mean, it seems like, well, wait a second. Isn't photography that malleable, that manipulable? I mean, all I do is I take my digital camera capture card out of my camera, I put it in the computer, and I download the pictures, and I can change the white balance all I want. Color photography wasn't ever that easy. When you made a color photograph, it was on a piece of film. That piece of film was merely a kind of template for all kinds of different things you might do, but you would do them later. You wouldn't do them at the time that you saw the scene. Cassindus begins to recognize that if you could take a color picture on the site and see the result directly afterwards, you could alter the way the picture looked. Polaroid was a revolutionary material for photographers who worked with it because they recognized that there was something that they couldn't ever have done before which was manipulate color because color had always been this thing. It was difficult, not impossible, but difficult to do in the traditional darkroom. You could do it, but you needed so much more equipment, and you needed to have much higher control over that equipment. So the Polaroid material for Cassindous was something that allowed her to make these gorgeous, romantic, beautifully lit photographs that had this sort of feel to them that no other photographer had made uh, before, and she began to exploit the qualities of those images. Olivia Parker. Olivia Parker in the 1980s, almost single-handedly, helped return photography to an interest in still life. If you think about it, photography had started with still life, but really hadn't been particularly interested in it until Olivia Parker and a few other photographers, but primarily Parker, began to explore the world of still image, carefully controlled still images. The living world, she said, seems to consist of fine balances and thin edges, small variations with fragile structures, delicate membranes, narrow temperature, and pressure tolerances. I like the implications of visual edges, the swollen limits of a ripe pear touching a hard line of light, downy feathers (coughs) confined by a metal grid, mirror scattering its surfaces into nothing, or the thin shell of a bright face, its edges already deteriorating to darkness. Parker, who started making black and white photographs with a large format camera, eventually began to make Polaroid photographs, first with the small 4x5 Polaroid material, later with the 8x10 Polaroid material, and then still later with the large format 20 by 24 inch Polaroid cameras that Polaroid made a couple of dozen of and spread around the world for photographers to experiment with. And what's interesting is that as Polaroid sort of went away a little while ago, it's beginning to slowly but surely come back. And yet Olivia Parker hasn't been sort of sitting on her laurels resting. She's been embracing the digital world. For 35 years, she said, I have made pictures that came out of the still-life genre. Still-life has sometimes been spoken of as a small art form, insignificant compared to the grand traditions of portrait, religious, and history painting, or 20th century statements tendered as huge, abstract, or expressionist canvases, not to mention the exotic or all-too-terribly-real transfixed in the camera's eye. Yet, still-life remains. Sometimes it's a vehicle for learning but I suggest that its persistence has to do with its proximity to the most basic concerns of human life, food, shelter, sex, and accompanying life and growth, and death. So she then goes on to say that the photographs I've been working on have a specific reference, 17th century Dutch, Flemish, and Spanish painting, light against a dark ground. To begin with, the pictures remain photographic, light and lens shaping and what's interesting was that she made this move from the film world to the digital photography world after getting into a bad skiing accident and not being able to easily move around. So she was kind of hobbled for quite a long time and uh, uh, was able to sit at the computer and play uh, with these images. Is that a brain?
1: Mm-hmm. Yeah. 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 Okay,
0: okay. Just In a jar. The brain mm. in a jar. Joyce Tennyson. Uh, And Joyce Tennyson I've included for two reasons. One is that her photographs celebrate uh, sort of the goddess spirit. So, by and large, her photographs are about women. They're about women's issues. And they're uh, about the sort of spiritual quality of women. People, she says are at the center of my work, and I'll always be interested in their inner life. It's what's below the surface that continues to fascinate me. I feel very strongly that if you go back to your roots, if you mine your inner territory, you can bring out something that is indelibly you and authentic. It's like your thumbprint. It's going to have your style because there is no one like you. So I've included Tennyson for that reason, but also because Tennyson has been a tireless supporter of young women photographers. In her studio in New York City, she hires young women photographers as assistants, as interns, and she works very hard at finding the best and the brightest and helping to move them into careers in photography. So she has had a a tremendous career as as a mentor of photographers. Sally Mann. Sally Mann earned both acclaim and notoriety with her second published collection of photographs at 12, Portraits of Young Women, which was published in 1988. Those portraits captured the confusing emotions and developing sexual identities of girls at that transitional age, one foot still in childhood and one foot in the adult world. So uh, she was, at the time, critically attacked for these images because some people felt that they verged on pornographic imagery. She uh, continued to produce work, and her next collection, Immediate Family, published in 1992 as a book and as exhibitions, brought even more acclaim for its hauntingly beautiful tableau, but also even more notoriety for its nude shots of her own pre-adolescent children. Conservative critics called the images child pornography and further evidence of the art world's amoral decadence. Uh, And as you might guess, those condemnations didn't really hurt her career. In fact, they kind of pushed her forward in some ways. Um, The photographs are uh, usually made with an 8 by 10 inch camera, are incredibly beautiful in terms of their tonal rendition and in terms of the the way in which her children sort of give themselves to the camera. Um, uh, There is a a terrific video uh, about her work called What Remains that's going out in a a tweet right now. More recently, she has been working with Wet Plate Collodion, producing Wet Plate Collodion photographs uh, and uh, making photographs of... uh, unpopulated rural Virginia landscapes. So here she is at work My
1: plates are horribly flawed, Um, but of course it's the flaws I like, so you pray. In your prayer, you pray, please don't let me screw it up, but just screw it up a little bit, just enough to make it interesting. I'm so stupid. I have to use one hand to hold my shutter shot. I have to use a head keep the camera from moving. All right, well, what do you think? 30 seconds, I'd say.
0: Actually, let's see. Just making that exposure guess. So wet plate, of course, has become a very important part of contemporary photography, partly because it's of its throwback nature, but also because of the kind of pictures that it produces. Uh, so uh, really interesting to see that, uh, that sort of whole thing come full circle. <clears throat> Annie Leibowitz, an important photographer of celebrity and popular culture. Uh, one of the things that I've always loved about Leibovitz is her very, very clever, very creative use of environment combined with pose. So uh, she tells us a little bit about the subject by virtue of where the subject is photographed. Um, She has long been uh, an important photojournalist and uh, also an important editorial photographer. And then Carrie Mae Weems. Carrie Mae Weems is a photographer and video installation artist examining the complex and contradictory legacy of African American identity, class, and culture in the U.S. Her intimate depictions of the children, adults, and families in simple settings document and interpret the ongoing and centuries-old struggle for racial equality, human rights, and social inclusion in America. Weems was... uh, Fairly recently, within the last year, named a MacArthur Fellow. You know about the MacArthur grant. The MacArthur grant is a grant you can't apply for. They come and ask you, and they give you enough money to be able to live and work for at least one year um, on whatever it is that you want to live and work doing. Really tremendous, tremendous recognition of her work. So this uh, piece uh, or set of pieces here is uh, from the kitchen table stories and it's, uh, uh, it's sort of set up in some ways as a play, like a drama, around notions of families. Uh, what are the issues that surround monogamy and polygamy? What are the issues that surround motherhood and friendship and compassion? Um, pretty terrific stuff. Conceptual. We're going to come upon these conceptual things more and more as we hit toward the end of the semester. Mona Kuhn, interested in redefining ways of looking at the body as a residence to ourselves. Kuhn's first monograph, called Photographs, was published by uh, Stadel, very important publishing house, in 2004 and was immediately followed by Evidence in the spring of 2007. Uh, the images appearing in evidence were photographed entirely in a naturist community in France uh, where Mona Kuhn resides each summer I met her she's awesome right?
1: yeah the way she talks about how she does the photographs because she just doesn't pick random people she said she like took them out to lunch and got to know them for a while before she shot all of these
0: Which, which makes perfect sense because otherwise this sort of like casual quality about the pictures wouldn't really make any, you know, it wouldn't work, uh, I don't think, in the same way. So uh, critics have said, the people in Mona Kuhn's photographs are nude but not naked. Completely relaxed before the camera, they give the impression that nothing could clothe them better than their own skin. With a unique style, Kuhn's intimate photographs of both young and old are central compositions of skin and wrinkles, Light and shadows, gestures and gazes. It was Kuhn's closeness and unforced sensuality that led Bottega Veneta uh, creative deck director Thomas Mayer to her approach to approach her for uh, their collection for 2011 and 12. And the art director, the creative director, said, "I wanted to express a closeness in this campaign, the kind of intimacy that is at the heart of Mona's image, as well as her precise approach." to light and color, and the freshness of her images. Now I brought that piece into the equation because not just in women's photography but in a general way, one of the things that the last decade has shown us is a tremendous crossover between um, the world of art photography and the world of commercial photography. Mona Kuhn was out there just making her pictures. Making her pictures the way she wanted to make them. And Somebody comes along and says, wow, I really like the style of that image. I like the style of what you're doing, the way in which you're approaching these subjects. I'd like you to do commercial work for us. Cindy Sherman has been photographing herself for more than 30 years, almost 40 now. She crosses the line between a kind of sense of playfulness that we might describe as postmodernism and an examination of self. But the real question is who self is if all of the subjects of the photographs are the same person. So what Sherman does is she positions and poses and dresses and uh, photographs herself as a wide variety of different women's roles, as portraying a wide variety of different women's roles. So this last little bullet, feminists wonder if she's subverting codes of female subjugation or perpetuating feminine stereotypes. In other words, is she sort of part of the opposition or part of the team in some way? So what's interesting about the pictures is that they span the gamut. From you know the the sort of naive ingenue to the to the victim in a slasher movie uh, and everything you could possibly imagine imagine in between and then Mary Ellen Mark, a documentary and photojournalistic photographer who uh, is sort of seemingly hell bent on examining every different kind of person every different type of person that she can find. Uh, She has been said, it's been said about her that she connects really quickly with her subjects and very deeply with them at the same time. Uh, And I've included here, even though these are fairly old photographs now from the 1980s, they're my favorite of Mary Ellen Mark's photographs. They're photographs from Mother Teresa's mission in Calcutta, uh, showing Mother Teresa uh, working with the, the residents of the mission Uh, helping them, feeding them, uh, and uh, celebrating mass with them. So uh, really tremendous, tremendous and tremendously interesting photographer whose work you see all the time. And that work is all in in magazines, news magazines, that sort of thing. That work is almost always directed toward some sort of humanist strategy. And then lastly here, uh, Susan K. Grant, Susan K. Grant's work stems from her very careful examination of dream state. Dream state. She wanted to photograph what dreams look like. And to do that, she figured out that in order to know what dreams look like, she would consult dream researchers. So she went to a sleep institute and underwent a bunch of studies on her own sleep state, what it was that her brain was doing Doing during sleep. Um, And uh, then uh, she began to make photographs of what dream state feels like, or maybe what dream state looks like. The photographs are displayed in many different kinds of ways from fairly small prints to very large prints. But at least initially, one of the ways that she wanted to display them was like this, printed on thin, transparent sheets of material. They were hung from the ceiling of the gallery so that as you walked around them, they moved with the current of your movement moving around the gallery, moving these things as if uh, they were uh, in, in dream state themselves, uh, that you were inside of the dream. Uh, so here she is, not photographing anything in reality in some way, but really photographing the world of our subconscious uh, and what that subconscious looks like. So uh, if we come to the end here see if we can answer that question Is anatomy, destiny I mean, what about Betty? What about Betty? What about Betty Friedan? You know? What about Betty Dan, who in 1963 said the problem lay buried unspoken For many years in the the minds of American women, it was a strange stirring, a sense of dissatisfaction, a yearning that women suffered in the middle of the 20th century in the United States. Each suburban wife struggled with it alone as she made the beds, shopped for groceries, matched slipcover material, ate peanut butter, sandwiches with her children, chauffeured Cub Scouts and brownies, lay beside her husband at night. She was afraid to ask, uh, ask even of herself the silent question, is this all? Does that still exist? Oh, yeah. Deb says yes. Mike says yes.